Okay, we are doing a bit of Bible ping pong. There's uh, four Bible verses. We're starting out in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, page 3 of the Black Bibles, if you want to look in one of those. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the whole earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. In the next page in the Black Bibles, we're doing Genesis 2, 15 to 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought, it to, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now we're going on to uh, Ephesians chapter 5. It's on page 18, 1820. Ephesians chapter 5, 22 to, to 33. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the, Christ submit, sorry, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her, by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed it and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, 
and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now we're bouncing backwards to Malachi chapter 2. It's on page 1493, verse 13 to 16. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favour on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask, why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your covenant marriage. Has not the one God, has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. Uh, yeah, uh, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Thank you, Paul. One of the <clears throat> current top objections to the God of the Bible t today is the idea that because the Bible mentions the idea of male headship, therefore the God of the Bible encourages domestic violence against women. So today I want to tackle this issue head on and ask, does the Bible's teaching about male headship foster domestic violence? We need to pray. Will you pray with me? Our loving Father, we come to this issue which we know is a hidden scourge in human society and indeed can be in churches. So therefore we are covering a topic which for some may be a deep wound. So we ask for the ministry of your Holy Spirit uh, who with a surgeon's precision is able to cut out what's cancerous and to bring healing. And we pray that that would happen today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so does the Bible's teaching about male headship foster domestic violence? This uh, question is in our national media. Uh, it's been raised repeatedly on the ABC, on the television program, The Drum. Uh, it has frontlined our newspapers that contrary to what many Christians may pretend, the reality is that domestic violence occurs in churches, in Christian marriages. Now, uh, incident rates are reported in the media and normally they are higher than what the source actually uh, says when you go back and look at the source, which is normally an American study. However, regardless of how high or low the incident rates are, the reality is that it does occur, and it has occurred. It does occur in Christian marriages, it occurs in churches, and it has occurred, I know, 
uh, to some marriages within Holy Trinity. Uh, the non-Christian world are awake to this reality in churches, and for too long, we've had a culture of silence about this issue. Of course, shame and fear make it very difficult for people to speak out, and when they've done so, uh, sadly, too often they have been disbelieved or reports have been discounted because of the very high standing in the church that the husband may have. So let me ask the question, does male headship foster domestic violence? We know it's a reality, but does this come from the Bible's teaching on male headship? This question became very real for me when my mother rang, who's not a Christian, she rang to explain how a cousin of mine, um, a lady, is, is married to a guy, and he was using the Bible to justify him being violent towards his wife. And she wanted to know what could I do about it. So here was an instance which was happening in my extended family. And my unchurched mother wanted answers. So I thought today because of the nature of the issue, uh, me being male, it would be good to hear from Narelle. So Narelle, please come up. And um, so that we know what we're talking about, Narelle is going to talk about what is domestic violence before I turn to the Bible's teaching on headship. Thank you. Okay, uh, I think that we'd all agree that uh, one of the basic needs in life is to feel safe. And whatever the world throws at you out there, you know that you can come home, and home is where you feel safe and all is right. But that's not the case in domestic violence. Now, when there's an equal relationship, conflict uh, is normal, isn't it? In, in, and not necessarily abuse in a normal relationship. But in the case of domestic violence, a one-off incident or often a pattern of behaviour um, has at its heart the goal or of the assertion of power and of control over somebody else, over, over the partner. Um, and the, the tactics that can be used uh, often are vary, but often it's all about fear and intimidation by using words or conduct. And it's anything but safe and a feeling of safe in that home. There's also often a gender split. So often, uh, usually it is the male against the female, but it can be the other way around. So what does it look like? Well, it can be controlling behaviours. It can be things like making the victim uh, be dependent on you, isolating them, taking away their means of independence, so taking away their access to money, maybe selling their car so they haven't got access to transport, maybe um, even controlling their medicines or their access to medicines, those sorts of things, so control. It can be physical, which we uh, often think of, the whole hitting, kicking, uh, punching, maybe it's assault on the children. Uh, maybe it's physically destroying stuff, destroying objects, even uh, destroying the victim's, you know, treasured possessions, things like that. It can be verbal, so it can be shouting, yelling, um, name-calling, you know, tirades. Um, it can be intimidation, um, frightening the victim with threats to harm the children or to harm the victim. It can be that whole male power abuse where the male says, you know, I'm the master of the house, um, everybody should be my servant, I get to make all the decisions, the rights are mine, everything, everybody is under me, I should have more money, blah, blah, blah. It might be pressure tactics, 
So things like threats, threats of withholding things, withholding money, withholding um, your phone, your internet access, threats to harm himself. Maybe lying to family and friends about the victim's behaviour. Uh, it can be sexual abuse, so any sort of unwanted sexual behaviour. It can be disrespect, uh, humiliation, so putting the partner down, especially in front of others, uh, not listening to them when they're talking, um, not responding, maybe interrupting them, um, stuff like that. It can be really just dismissing the partner's feelings and opinions. It can be breaking trust. It can be playing mind games, things like, you know, driving the car and driving it really erratically so that they're showing that, you know, I've got power over you, I could run into the tree if I wanted to. Um, isolation, uh, monitoring phone calls, internet, social media, telling them where they can or can't go, that sort of thing, locking them in the house. It might even be that whole sort of harassment, so continually checking up on them, following them, monitoring what they're doing, uh, having a GPS on them so they know exactly where they are every minute of the day. Um, and then there's also that whole spiritual abuse idea, which is that idea of using scripture to either justify your control over them or justify your um, violence, that sort of thing, demanding certain behaviours and maybe saying that uh, if you don't do what I say, if you don't do this sort of behaviour, you know you're going to go to hell because you're not doing what's right. It could be, or just criticising beliefs, not letting them go to Bible study, women's groups, that sort of stuff. It's just such a horrible list of stuff. And some of these things, just in themselves, may really just be a symptom of really poor relating, but others of them are really um, just a one-off, done only once, is abuse. But what, remember, makes the abusive uh, relationship is these patterns of behaviour that are all about exercising power and control over someone else. So domestic violence is wrong, it's a crime, it harms the victim, it harms the children who are witnessing it. And it occurs at all levels of society, and like Chris has said, it occurs in our churches. The sad thing has often been minimalised, it's been discounted, disbelieved, but it's never excusable, and whenever it's identified, it really needs um, to not be allowed to continue. And it's not just a relationship issue that, you know, just relationship counselling will help. No, it's an issue of violence and abuse and sin, and it needs to be dealt with. That's it. Thank you, my darling. All right. With that uh, introduction to domestic violence, we come to the question, does the Bible's teaching on male headship foster that? Before I answer, I want to clear the ground by making two key points. First of all, domestic violence is never sanctioned in the Bible, ever. So it's not something God approves of, it's not something he encourages, it's not something he, he commands. In Malachi chapter 2, God says, I hate a man's covering himself with violence as with a garment. Pretty clear. Now, of course, sadly, there are instances of, in the Bible of domestic violence having been recorded. Uh, this is not to justify it or to encourage it. Remember, there are many sins recorded in the Bible uh, from which we need forgiveness. The Bible's um, very realistic about how ugly human sin is. Domestic violence in the Bible is never excused. God always condemns it as wicked. It is always sin. Secondly, from the opening chapter in the Bible, we see that both men and women are, are made equally in the image of God. Both share the job of ruling the world together under God. Both of them, men and women. 
So that means that women are not to be viewed as second class. They are not an afterthought from God. They are not inferior to men. Creation itself, and that's why we had read those passages, shows that husbands are to see their wives as equal in status and dignity with them. Okay, so having cleared some of the ground, now we can ask, does male headship foster domestic violence? Because we could all see how it could, couldn't we? I mean, isn't the view that the wife must submit to the husband and that her husband is her head, isn't that in itself an abusive power relationship and a structure that encourages domestic violence to occur? Well, it could if headship is misunderstood. Because when we understand what headship means, it is, it is completely poles apart from any view that, in, that enforces the obedience or the subjugation of women. Headship is not about that. Which means that if male headship is ever used to justify domestic violence against women, what's being talked about there as male headship is not what the Bible teaches. It is, in fact, a perverse distortion of what the Bible teaches. So you might say, well, even so, but doesn't the Bible's teaching on male headship make conditions ripe for the perfect storm of domestic violence when you add in human depravity? That is, does, here's this, an equation for you mathematicians out there, does male headship plus human sinfulness equal domestic violence? Well, the answer is no, not when men pay attention to what headship means and not when they follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem is it's, complete, it's so easy to completely misunderstand male headship. And so let me outline four common misunderstandings of male headship. The first misunderstanding is to think male headship means my wife is my slave or my lackey. You know, after all, someone might say, doesn't Genesis 2 say the woman was made as the helper of man? That sounds like slave, doesn't it? No. <laughs> okay, the Bible does say the woman was made as the helper, but the psalmist would say, the Lord is my helper. Same word. And the Lord is not someone's slave or lackey. That would be a misunderstanding, a complete distortion. You might say, well, yeah, but... Doesn't Ephesians 5.24 say the wife must submit to her husband in everything? Yes, it does. So therefore, second misunderstanding. Headship means telling my wife what to do. It does not. It just doesn't. Just because submission may on times mean... Um, doing what someone says, and it may, it may not as well. We can talk about that in questions, what does submission mean? That would be a good question. Okay, just because it might mean that in certain circumstances, it doesn't follow that headship therefore means telling your wife what to do. Headship cannot mean ordering your wife around. Because if it did, then when Paul says, wives submit to your husbands in everything, we'd expect him then to say, so husbands, tell your wives what to do. But he doesn't say that, does he? He says, husbands, love your wives. That's what headship means. Loving, not telling them what to do, but loving them. In fact, nowhere are husbands ever given instructions to make our wives submit. That is a misunderstanding of headship. Headship cannot mean me telling Narelle, you must submit. 
Why do I say that? Well, who are those words addressed to in the book of Ephesians? Wives, submit to your husbands. Who's that addressed to? Wives. Is it addressed to husbands? No. Husbands uh, have their own bit and it's much longer and it's much harder, okay? A third misunderstanding is that headship means the husband makes all the decisions. Again, we think of that because of the submission passage, wives submit to your husbands, uh, therefore we think, therefore, submission means doing what he says, therefore headship means he makes all the decisions, okay? This was a, a wrong thought that I brought into my own marriage and it produced much tension in the early year. But if we go back to Genesis 1, God told the man and the woman to rule over the world together. Ruling involves decision making. And in Genesis chapter 1, it is a joint enterprise. They are both told to do this together. In our own marriage, of course, I will make some decisions, um, but not all of them. Because I have learned <laughs> that on many issues, Narelle is much wiser than I am. And therefore, it always makes sense to listen to her. Okay, a fourth misunderstanding is that headship means making my wife submit, as if submission is something to be forced upon a wife, that husbands are entitled to use a heavy hand. Again, where is a heavy hand of a husband against a wife ever sanctioned in the Bible? It's just not there. That's wrong, a wrong understanding. If we want to know, if husbands want to know what exercising authority means, we need only look to Jesus, the one who has all authority. And yes, he never married, but he did have all authority over his disciples. Um, many women followed him as well. He had authority over them. But how does he use it? We never see him beating up anyone. We never see him shouting at his followers, we never see him calling them names, ridiculing them, we never see him saying, you must submit. What we do see him doing is teaching, leading by example, involving them in what he's doing, being patient with them, patient with their weaknesses, setting them challenges, uh, helping them, stretching out his hand to save them, looking after them when he is tired, but they are weary and hungry. That's loving headship. He's the model, you see. He tells us what, or he shows us what headship is. So we misunderstand male headship when we define headship and submission um, as an abuse of power. And we also misunderstand headship and submission, this is a bit more tricky, when we define them in reference to each other. And this is where many of the problems arise in um, biblical sort of interpretation. Wives, submit to your husbands as to, as to the Lord. And then we go, oh, because of that, therefore, um, um, submission, uh, uh, sorry, headship must mean me telling her what to do. No, 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 no. That's defining headship and submission with reference to each other. But if you read Ephesians 5, headship and submission are not defined with reference to each other, but to Christ. So, um, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. In other words, a wife's submission to her husband is part of her obedience to Christ. And he himself, of course, submitted. He submitted to his father. 
So just as Jesus submits to his father, a wife can say, yes, I submit to my husband because that's part of my submission to Jesus. Okay, so her submission is defined with reference to Christ himself. And similarly, a husband's uh, headship is defined in reference to Christ, not in reference to anything his wife has to do. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, washing her with water through the word. That is male headship. Okay, you work it out not by working out what your wife has to do, you work it out by what Jesus did. It's modelled on Christ. It's loving, it's sacrificial. It has her best interest in mind. It's, it doesn't mean I make all the decisions. It doesn't mean I must make my wife submit. It doesn't mean I can order her around. When you look at what the Bible actually says, true male headship is defined with reference to Christ, what he did for his bride, his bride, the church, loving her, laying down his life for her. So no Christian husband, um, of course, sorry, if we, if we therefore work, sorry, if husbands now need to work out what does loving headship mean if Christ gave his life for her, big, right? Uh, well, it can't mean I lay down my life as a sin offering for her to somehow make atonement for her sins. No, 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 it doesn't mean that. Only Jesus does that. If we wanted to, we couldn't because we ourselves are sinful. You need a sinless person to make atonement by giving up their life. So we can't do it and neither would we need to because Jesus' sacrifice was once for all and pays for all sins for all time. So we don't need to. So we can't lay down our lives as a sin offering. That's what, not what Paul means. He says, love your wives as in the same way that Christ loved the church, sacrificially with her best interest for her end goal in mind. There are a thousand different ways that this works out in practice. From the small courtesies and acts of thoughtfulness in a marriage. Here's a cup of tea. Using polite manners. Thank you. Please, would that be okay? Those small courtesies which actually build a relationship of trust and love and respect. Through to the very big decisions of what will be in our wife's best interests in the long term. An example, in my own marriage, of course, uh, uh, I had my heart set on doing ministry, uh, really from the time I became a Christian at age 15 or 16. And I'd been working towards this and people had been encouraging me. But very early on in our marriage, it was clear that uh, this path was taking its toll on Norell. And I remember, I remember the moment when I said it, I realised I needed to say, if you don't think we can do this, of course we don't have to. Now, that was a very hard sentence to say because I'd been working at it for years. It's what I wanted to do. And then Narell said, oh no, of course I want you to do that. That's good. <laughs> Phew. But I had to say it because my role as a husband was to have her best interests in mind. God would, keep, would hold me responsible for whether on the day of Christ she makes it to the end as a Christian and in good shape. Not jaded, not embittered, not given up. I was responsible for that. So I had to make some big decisions. 
The end goal that Christian husbands must have for their wives is to present them holy and blameless before the Lord. Now, of course, Christ has already made them holy, so our job is easier, <laughs> okay? What we need to do is encourage our wives in the word of God and in walking in fellowship with Christ. Um, we need to encourage them in righteousness of life so that when Christ comes, they don't just get over the line, they make it in good shape. And that means that when we talk of exercising headship over our wives, the word of God and prayer are going to be integral. So that just as Christ gave himself up for the church, washing her with water through the word, so too husbands are to encourage our wives in growing in knowledge, dependency, understanding of God's word. Guys, that's our job. Now, of course, the trick is not all men are natural teachers. Um, and it's something you can improve with over time. Um, sometimes it's even more complicated because in a marriage there's a, frankly, there's an education or an intelligence disparity where the wife is further along. But the main priority is to set the example, making sure that we are reading, that we are growing, and as well as that, that to then take the lead, to work out how, how do you pepper the word of God throughout your lives and your households? How do we take our time uh, to encourage our wives in this? Perhaps taking her to home group? Perhaps minding the children so that she can go? Perhaps it will be taking the lead in praying for her every single day and letting her know that you're doing that. All of us can do that. It will be setting the tone in the family, a tone of encouragement, where you encourage your wives and your kids to grow in the love and the grace of God. It will mean not lording, them, lording it over our wives or our children in an authoritarian way that makes them cower in fright. That is to abuse power. That is something repugnant to the Lord. It is not Jesus' example. But instead, it's to exercise loving care over our wives so that they blossom, so that they flourish and grow as women of faith rather than being squashed down in fear. That is the biblical view of male headship. And when you understand that, you see it is a million miles away from any view which might justify domestic violence. So why do we find in our culture the idea of male headship so repugnant? It's because it seems so demeaning to women and a denial of their rights. Yet the incredible thing is that, the, is that Jesus' headship was shown in him laying aside his rights, demeaning himself out of love for his bride, for us, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Rather than that headship being repugnant and oppressive, that sort of sacrificial, loving, other person-centered headship, that wins our devotion, doesn't it? I mean, you want to follow someone like that. And it's something we can show. Around our country at the moment, there are thousands of people who are giving up their own comfort, their own privacy, their own um, wages to fight fires for other people who they don't know. It's a very impressive moment. And there are stacks of community volunteers who are there supporting others, who are inviting those who are homeless into their own homes. 
it's, it's actually a terrific moment to see this kind of, well, an example of this lived out across our nation. That sort of sacrificial, loving service for the good of others is something we applaud. We call those people heroes, don't we? It's a million miles away from oppression, oppressive domestic violence. It's something you want to foster and encourage. Now, if you've, you're here perchance and you've got an axe to grind against Jesus, I want to beg you not to reject Jesus on the basis of perhaps how your husband has treated you. Because Jesus is more of a man than any other men here, including myself, are. And we love him for it. And we follow him. Wives, submitting as to the Lord, just as he himself submitted to his father. And husbands, loving sacrificially, just as the way Christ modelled for us. We're going to pray and then have a question time. A gracious Father in heaven, if we're not married, please get our thinking right on this. If we are single or we're not married yet or maybe once we're married or indeed are divorced, please help us to think biblically and be submissive to Jesus in our own way. And also help us to be supports for others. But if we are married, help us to model our behavior on Christ. And may, where there is sin, may there be repentance, deep repentance, and also healing so that cycles of sin don't persist. We ask for your help in Jesus' name.